From Muhlenberg College, this is 2400 Chew. I'm your host, Shakita Griffin. In each episode of this podcast, I talk to one Muhlenberg graduate about their current work and the industry in which that work is done. For this episode, I spoke with Jen Epting Derry, class of 2003, founder of Plucky. As I do with most of these interviews, I began the conversation by asking how and when Jen became interested in her occupation. You know, when you look back, I think there's a lot of signs along the way for not only your personality, but what you're drawn to, and then ideally also what you're good at. So currently, I am a leadership coach. I run my own company called Plucky, and I work mostly with folks in the tech or tech-adjacent industries. And tech is not something I ever thought I would be in. I was an English English and French major. I have a master's in French lit. And it was that, you know, there's a financial crisis in 2008. And I had a lot of loans from my um, master's degree. And I ran into actually a fellow Muhlenberg alum at a happy hour in New York. And he told me that he was now an engineer, a software engineer. And that just seemed so wild to me and like nothing I would ever do. But he said, hey, you're smart. Why don't you come try to work at the company? And so that was my intro to tech. I was not writing code. I was writing words. I was, uh, you know, working on some of the copy for the websites and things like that. And then I sort of, after a few years, I had my first son and I wondered, what if I did my own thing? And I felt like the employee development work that I was doing at that point at the company was this interesting combination of career pathing, obviously, but sort of mentoring and coaching. And so that's why I started Plucky. But what's funny, Chiquita, is when I look back, I was an RA Mm -hmm. for a few years. Now, what 19-year-old is like, you know, it would be fun. I'd like to stay in every Friday and take care of 32 other young women. Of course, right? (laughs) Not very popular. But what I, I remember is having a little couch in my room up on Prosser, third floor, and definitely a version of coaching, right? Mm -hmm. Women who are having questions or about their careers, you know, future careers, what should I major in, things like that. And then, of course, all the other things that happened in college, relationships and whatnot. But that's, when I look back, that's a little sign of something. And then when I lived in Paris for my master's, I was an English teacher for folks in businesses. So I would between my classes, I would, you know, travel all around Paris and go to these big insurance companies or whatever and talk to their business executives in English to help improve their language skills. What was I doing there? Well, I was sitting with someone one-on-one talking about their job. Right. And that's also coaching. And so the way I got to my career on paper looks really disjointed. But in reality, there are many, many patterns, again, of what I like to do and what I'm good at. And it's such a surprise to kind of be 10 years into running my own thing, but it has definitely felt very graceful all the way through, even if not always, you know, you're not always confident in each decision. When you look back, it really looks pretty smooth. And I love that. You know, I think that 2020 hindsight almost, you know, while you're in school doing these different things, it's so hard to see exactly what you're saying, these patterns emerging or realize what you're interested in. You know, you're really speaking my language because we're constantly telling students, like, stop, reflect on your experiences, 
so that you can really start to hopefully see these trends and these patterns about what it is that you enjoy. So I love a nonlinear story. hundred <laughs> percent. And, you know, I was thinking about this this morning in preparation for this conversation, but it really does seem, I mean, I'm 42 years old right now. So, you know, I'm obviously super ancient to anybody at Mueleberg at the moment. But when I look back, it seems very silly to me that at 18, 19 years old, we are saying to a person, what do you want to do for the rest of your life? There is a lot of stuff that's going to happen in someone's life. And so there are going to be exceptions to this if you're going to go into medicine or things like that, that you really do need to get started earlier. But for the most part, learning to be, I would say, a strong writer and an excellent critical thinker and a person who can work well with people, that's the ball game. I mean, in college, if you can handle that, then a lot of what you're sort of alluding to is this concept of, I would say, lack of control which is we're anxious. We want to tell our parents we made something of ourselves. Sure. You know, we want to justify the loans we've got. And that is all fair. But I would say that we can each trust that there is something we're going to stumble into. Sometimes that's planned and very often it's not planned, but it doesn't mean it's not coming. Yes, for sure. I love that advice. And kind of along those lines, the bravery to take the leap into starting your own business you know, and especially walking away from, right, an established employer going into this space where I'm sure everything was new at that time in terms of, of figuring it all out. Can you talk about what kind of motivated you, fortified you while taking that risk? And what did that look like? Absolutely. I talk to a lot of people, particularly women who are thinking about starting their own thing. And I often say that the hard part is not the work. Like you'll figure out how to make an invoice. You can YouTube many things. You can find out what rates other people pay for the kind of services you provide. But the hard part is the decision mm -hmm. and the courage to use your word to step out and do something different. I sort of mentioned that I, I started Plucky right after my first son was born. And I also talk a lot about how parenting is this really obvious crossroads that you come to because your identity completely shifts. Mm -hmm. And so there's this disruption where you get to say, hmm, is it going to be the same moving forward or is it going to be different? And in, for some folks, they have the privilege of asking, do I go back to work? Do I stay home from work part time? I had some of that option, but not all of it. So to take advantage of something so significant as becoming a parent, I wondered, well, what is this going to look like now? And I felt like the agency where I was at, which I really did love, and I learned so much over five and a half years there, I felt like it, uh, there was a ceiling. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a little mm -hmm. bit too small pond anymore. And although I really enjoyed everybody I worked with, I thought that my growth was going to be a little limited, or at least the potential for that if I didn't try something else. I also did not tell my parents until after I quit my job. Oh <laughs> <laughs> because there are many people in your life who are going to be nervous and want to protect you. Mm -hmm. That comes from so much love. But at the moment that I thought I might want to take that risk, I had my own anxieties and protection. And so the only folks I let myself talk to about that decision were people that were going to be more like, go team, not irresponsibly, right, but right. you know. More that counterbalance to where I was already feeling really responsible and protective. So I would also say that for anybody who is thinking about doing their own things, it really matters who you spend your time with, who believes that you could do wild things, and who's very well-intentioned, but maybe conservative or anxious nature 
might not be the right person to talk to as you're starting that kind of adventure. Yeah. And I think that just makes so much sense to really again think about who's in your network. Think about the different types of advice and messaging and support that you need at a given time. And like mm-hmm. you're saying, not necessarily filter people out, but being mindful of where they're coming from and understanding, yeah. like you're saying, the the fear and concern a lot of times is coming from a great place. <laughs> but yeah. especially your parents, you know, especially those closest to you, their fear is going to become your fear. So, yeah, really being absolutely. Mindful and it's that. all it's all very meta now because now I have two kids who are seven and ten and especially the 10 year old, you know, he's the first one moving through our parented journey here. And as he gets older and there are more decisions that we have to make about what's appropriate, what he's allowed to do, it's hard. You definitely want to say, nope, you're not doing anything. But, (laughs) you know, I too am a human who has parents and who has needed to kind of negotiate that with them. So it is a good thing to kind of reflect back on now as a parent myself and wonder how might I be supportive of my kids should they want to take risks like that? Definitely. I love that. And so to think more about Plucky and about your work, I'm sure the answer is no, that there's not a typical work day, but you know, <laughs> as much as you can, can you describe what your work looks like? Absolutely. So I would say that a little more than half my time is spent one-on-one coaching. So what that means is that it would be a 55-minute session for some of my clients have been coaching for years and for others, I coach sort of a quarter at a time. And in that 55 minute session for the first few minutes, we might chat about what's been going on since I talked to them last. And then I'll say, what do you want to talk about today? Now, my primary client base is leaders. So that might be newer leaders who just became managers all the way through, you know, C-suite, um, CEOs, founders, things like that. And so the kind of things that they bring to discuss might be team dynamics, like some toxicity or, you know, good old group work from back in the day. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Some people do their stuff and some people don't. So it could be team related. It could certainly be managing related, like how do you get people to do their stuff or how do you retain them if they're so fantastic and you don't want them to get poached somewhere else? And so all kinds of stuff. What makes you anxious at work? Definitely the last few years with COVID has been a big challenge to keep people grounded and balanced, I would say. And so that's about half my time, maybe a little bit more each week. I also, and this is not each week, but probably three or four times a year, I teach a class called So Now You're a Manager. And that is specifically for people less than three years into management, because again, to sort of riff back a second, I I think there's an identity shift that happens when you get power. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to be mindful of that when you go from being peers with someone to someone who could give them a raise or fire them or, you know, all kinds of promote them. So it's great to take a beat and ask, who do I want to be with this new authority? And who are my models for that? And so that's what that class is about. I really like teaching that. And then more recently, and kind of interestingly, I have also started to be a writer. So I have my first book that I am starting to query agents for. And that is something I definitely had a concentration in writing at Muhlenberg. And what that means is that I've carved out a chunk of my week. I have the flexibility with my own business to do that. And so all morning this morning, actually, I was writing and working on some stuff. And that is awesome. I'm really glad to get back to that after so long. 
No, that's fantastic. And thanks for kind of breaking it out in those different chunks, if you will. You know, I always, especially for that student audience, like to touch on the less glamorous side of the entrepreneurship. So, you know, especially in your case, in terms of finding clients, right, relationship building, can you talk about some of the work that goes into that piece as well? Oh, yeah. Anything (laughs) with the IRS is yeah, thumbs not down. interesting. <laughs> <laughs> like perhaps, I don't know, the accounting, the business majors might be like, sweet IRS stuff. But this is not my jam. It's the, you know, all, any kind of rules or things like I, I have a virtual assistant and figuring out is she a contractor 1099 or is she an employee W2 and like all kinds of systems for this, how to pay someone. That is just not my specialty, and I do it because I need to do it. But yeah, that stuff sucks when that's on my to-do yeah. list that week. I'm like, oh god, I need a double coffee right there now. You, you know. <laughs> and I have been lucky. So I said Plucky's ten years old, right? Mm-hmm. And so I have been lucky to have. It's got a very solid foundation right now. The business is not about to fall apart at any moment, and it's a small business. It's me as a coach, and then, like I said, I have an assistant. However. This year is, I don't know if we're officially calling it a recession or what we're calling it at this point, but if you can think through the client process, my clients often have professional development budget. Mm -hmm. So that might be $2,000 or $1,000 and they can use that towards whatever they want. It could be coaching. It could be a ticket to one of my classes, books, seminars, other things that Mm -hmm. I don't do, but right. Well, this year there's a bunch of layoffs in tech, like many, many layoffs right now. So number one, you've got folks that don't have a job. Number two, you've got hiring freezes and basically frozen Mm -hmm. promotional paths right now. So nobody's becoming a new manager. Also, nobody has money for professional development. So that's frozen. So if you can see that broader picture, anybody who normally pays me doesn't have money. (laughs) So I am doing just fine and I have plenty of coaching clients. But I did just move one of my trainings from it was going to be in June. I moved it to November. Okay. Because I I have sold out this training for five years, Jaquita. And I was just I couldn't believe it. I was reaching out all my normal people, everything. Mm -hmm. And I really couldn't sell the tickets. So. I mean, for students listening, you know, that is where for me, I felt like, well, I could like go sleepless and spend six weeks, the hustle, the grit, you know, all these words that everybody writes books about in the Barnes and Noble business section. Um, Like you can certainly put that on your plate, but I'm 10 years into this business. I'm not doing that. I was like, it's fine. How do I re-collaborate the year? Redefine the shape of it. I amped up my coaching availability and I moved the training to later in the year. And yeah. I said, well, it might not be the same exact income at the end of the year, but it might be. And maybe the the money comes from a different resource. And so the ability to sort of be flexible and nimble in that way, I think is really important. And I, I say that also not just about Plucky, but many of the folks that I coach at startups or product companies right now, yeah, there's not a lot of consumers with a bunch of cash right now either. Everyone's pretty conservative. So for those businesses to say, hang on, we need to shift our mindset. What have we been doing given this new economic landscape? Now, how do we turn and pivot to it? It's way more of a superpower Mm -hmm. to do something like that than to like hold with your hands so tightly clasped about the original intention, you know? 
It's not what it is anymore. Cool. You can be sad and now cut bait and move on and find a better way to do it. Definitely. You know, our love and hate word here has become pivot and pilot because we're piloting. so real. (laughs) Piloting and pivoting all the time. But I mean, really, to your point, it is that ability to be nimble, to see the situation, to at times look at the bigger picture, like you're saying, and then make the Mm -hmm. decisions based off of that. It really is a superpower in a lot of ways. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And you know, you don't have to strong arm yourself through grief or frustration or anything like that. You take a beat and you, I mean, I took probably three weeks of waiting to make that decision. I was like, if I sell two this week, I'll keep it. If I sell three this week, I'll keep it. And I, it's not like I was sleeping, you know, I was definitely trying and I was pissed. I was like, man, this is what I had planned. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But at some point, and this is a human skill set, it's not only in business, but well, sometimes it's just not what was going to happen. So it's really important, I think, to be a healthy, fulfilled adult to learn to absorb those moments in your life and find a way to get curious about what else could happen. And so with Plucky and your coaching, you know, has it primarily been uh, remote and virtual? Were the, was there a time that you were more in person? And then, of course, I'm sure as you can see this question coming, how has the pandemic affected the work? Mm-hmm. Um, I have never coached in person, okay. interestingly. Uh, that has always been over Zoom. I think if I really were to answer why, I think it's a combination of I've always worked from home, sure. so there probably isn't an obvious office space. But also my clients are everywhere, including other countries, mm-hmm. you know, so that wasn't really um, a priority, I sure. guess I'll say, to find, you know, brick and mortar office space. Uh, I think that I did run that manager training in person for the first 11 cohorts. So that was the first three years or so. Then COVID comes. And now everything has been virtual since then. Mm -hmm. We're up to cohort 27. So it's been a lot lot of adjusting, right, for how to teach over Zoom, Mm -hmm. as everybody at Muhlenberg (laughs) knows. (laughs) I'm sure probably have nightmares still about it. But, um, (laughs) you know, again, that's one of those things where you just had to be like, well, if this is what it is, we're going to we're going to somehow make it work. Definitely. In terms of business, I felt less affected from COVID than I did as a parent. Mm. Um, in 2020, I had a first grader and a four year old. And we were in Berkeley, California at that point. Right now okay. I live outside D.C. OK. But, um, my first grader, you know, it was that whole thing in March. Right. It was like oh, how cute. We're going to be their teacher for two weeks. Come on, spring break a little early. Oh, the sweet babies we were. And, (laughs) you know, and so the the first month or month and change of the pandemic, I mean, nobody's even thinking about putting kids on Zoom. It's just, here's some worksheets, pick it up every week, you know, don't touch anything. And that was so hard to keep both of my sons doing anything all day. You know, they, they, aren't really independent players at those ages. My husband is a software engineer. He's working full-time all day. I changed my schedule so that, remember, I'm in Pacific time at that point. So Mm -hmm. I would get up and I would coach from 6 to 9 Pacific, meaning 9 to 12 Eastern clients could take me. Then starting 9 a.m. California time, I would be with the kids. And then around 4 o'clock California time, I think, I opened coaching back up for other clients in other time zones. 
So it was long days. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. And the reason we left California was the wildfires that mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. I, I think they're better this year, but that year we're so intense. And so you couldn't even take the kids out to play because the air was so terrible that right. summer. And so, yeah, what I remember of pandemic is that level of just stress and fatigue that you really didn't have any breaks, you know. And so we moved to Arlington, Virginia, outside D.C., because my brother lives here. And okay. um, and we just, you know, something had to give. <laughs> oh, yes. And across the board, you know, that <laughs> those pivot and pilot words come back in full force, so you know, when we talk yeah. about the pandemic and really it was so new for everyone, right? We were all just trying to to figure it out together. So we're very happy mm-hmm. to be, you know, in, in many ways coming out on the other side and, and returning to a little bit more normalcy, um, even on yeah. campus here. What's funny is that I, I don't know, you know, depending on who's listening, I'm sure there's some folks this will resonate with and maybe some not, but I held it together. Like, and my husband too, but like we gripped each other and got through it, including a cross country move, including, you know, all this stuff. And then late last fall, so maybe six months ago or so, I just hit a wall mm. and I, I was talking to my therapist about it and she said, you know, it sounds like you're burned out. And I was like, I think I'm burned out. I mean, yeah, it's like I'm literally coached right? people through this. My <laughs> clients are burned out all the time, but I did not allow myself the opportunity to also have that problem. Oh, yeah. It's really hard, right, to know yourself in that way. So I don't really know what to do with myself when I'm burned out. It's not really my MO. And so this has been a good last few months, I guess, of really exploring that as a mom and as a woman and as a worker, entrepreneur, all those things. What does that schedule need to change and Mm -hmm. look like in order to kind of reconstitute yourself back to neutral? My go-to phrase has become give yourself grace, you know, in understanding that, again, it is so many new emotions, situations, things to deal with. And all you can do is give yourself grace and know that you're doing the best that you can. Sometimes that's it. I mean, yes. Yeah. Go to bed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when all else fails, go to bed. <laughs> Get in bed right now. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, with your clients also, have you seen or heard any kind of typical feedback from them with regards mm-hmm. to now working remote or in hybrid situations and how that's affecting relationships? I think in tech, many, many companies were already remote or at least hybrid. and that is a a positive for that industry that it wasn't all super brand new you're seeing some reverb now back to office you know all this kind of stuff i don't know i think this is leaders reading articles in the financial times and forbes and being like yes we're gonna do that too i don't know i think i think they're gonna ultimately you know post recession i guess when things are booming again they're going to have a real a much more limited potential recruiting situation because it has become a total strength for many Mm -hmm. folks, particularly those who are living in very expensive areas who want to raise kids and have a little more space. And so during pandemic moved to either suburbs or even further out from these big cities where the jobs were. So those are 
highly talented people and the companies that are the most flexible are going to get them. You know, they're not not leaving Iowa to go back to Berkeley or right. San Francisco. Right. You know, right. sorry, that's probably not happening. So, yeah, there's a little bit of back and forth, but I kind of see, at least even for myself, I'm a person that loves being with people. And I think you pick up on so much more, uh, you know, I would almost say like invisible data about mm -hmm. people. Why is this person eating lunch alone today? What's going on with this one, right? Like, especially for managers and leaders, there's all this extra stuff you can know about people when you're in person. So although I really do embrace the flexibility that a remote situation gives you, it can be quite lonely, actually, mm -hmm. and especially in my situation where I'm the only person other than my assistant. So I have found that I've needed to kind of balance that, like I'm really involved with my kids' school on the PTA. So that is an opportunity for me to see people in person all the time. And so for folks that are mostly remote, I think it's important to have community in person. Definitely. It doesn't have to be work-related, but yeah. in order to stay kind of healthy and balanced in the ways we're talking about. No, definitely. That makes complete sense. And so looking at your role and Plucky and you know all the things that we've talked about, what are the most challenging and the flip side, the most rewarding aspects of your work? Well, sometimes I'd really love a boss. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds real good to not have a boss. And it is. It is real good. But you don't have anyone setting path or expected growth or ideas for growth or support and resources around that. Um, you also don't have anyone that tells you when you do a really good job sure. or gives critical feedback. I mean, of course, I, you know, I, we, we send um, forms and such to my clients to get feedback, but it's different. Yeah. So the freedom there is, is amazing. I don't have to double check with anybody. I can do whatever I want, follow my intuition, be very creative with the kinds of stuff that Plucky does in the world. But sometimes I really would love like a parent almost, sure. you know, in the industry. <laughs> um, and you you find peers, but it's not the same exactly. Yeah. I think that's a, a challenge that people overlook quite often because it sounds so damn good to not have anybody blocking you almost, right? right like right. above you. But then but that means excellent you're making managers. all the decisions and everything. Yeah. 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 And to work for a leader who respects you and gives you space and allows you to build, you know, whatever you're doing with your department or your team, those folks are so invaluable in the world. And so I have to be that. I, I can't sort of absorb it through someone else. In terms of what I what is the best, I mean, I really do think Plucky is like an art project for me. So I have some products that I've invented for managers to help them figure out what to cover in meetings, one-on-ones with their reports, things like that. And that's all because I, I literally listen as my job. <laughs> and I would hear these themes that people would struggle with. And I was like, hmm, now what can I invent to help them all with that? So that is something, like, I'll, I'll give you a great example. Earlier this year, when we have all these layoffs coming, I was, you know what, I'm going to have a coach on one Friday. I was, I'm blocking it off. I'm doing half hour slots. I think I did 10 or eight slots and they're free. And it's for anybody who's been laid off. Okay. You can take one of the spots. Cool. First time people. So I coach all day. And at the end of the day, I really understood 10 different stories of people who had been laid off recently. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, you know, obviously the, the day was really mission filled for me. And, and I, I felt like a really 
helpful person in the world, you know, a soft landing and maybe resourceful for, for those I was talking to. But at the end, I was like, hmm, I have all this data now. I know what these stories are like. What can I do with this? And so I made a free download for a career planning guide if you've been laid off. So I wrote the content right that weekend after that Friday. And then I had my designer put it together and I released it the next Friday. And I said, here, I learned a lot about what you might be looking at and worried about and needing to process. Here, I put it in a career planning guide for you all. That's something that I am able to do just based on the weather. You know, what is going on out there? And uh, I appreciate that a lot. And I'm really motivated by things like that. I really love planning, but I also really love a spontaneous moment too. And, uh, you know, like the writing stuff I mentioned and Muhlenberg is such a lovely liberal arts place where we get to be outside the borders and boundaries of our majors. And I like crossing those borders and boundaries too in my work. And so I don't have anyone saying, stay right there in that one job and you're not allowed to do anything else. And I appreciate that so much. And the impact that you're able to have doing that, you know, that sounds awesome that you're able to reach out, right? Connect with those 10 people who may not have known about you beforehand and really have an impact on hopefully their job search, right? As they are trying to recover from those layoffs. I'll also throw that out for anybody wanting to start their own business. And this is probably more on the services side of business than product or whatnot. But in the very beginning, when I didn't have clients yet, I was really just planting seeds, right? That's all you're doing for a while. You're just telling people, hey, I'm doing this, hey, I'm doing this, hey, I'm doing this. And then someone says, you know who you should talk to? You should talk to my cousin. Then you call the cousin. Yep. Hey, here's what I'm doing today. So for a while in the beginning, it's really that concept of networking, but networking's always people think it's so lame, but I'm just saying connecting, right? Like connect, connect. And one of the first coaching offerings that I did is I would ask around and say, do you know of any new startups that literally have like no money for coaching? I will take one pro bono client each quarter. And so I would get, you know, a tiny company of less than 10 people with like two co-founders and I would coach the co-founders for a quarter for free. And then after that, I would say, cool, well, we could keep going and here's what it would cost. Or if not, or even yes, you know, who should I use next quarter for a pro bono? And I got involved in probably five or six small, small startups who now are longstanding clients and always refer people to me and all that kind of thing. So that is just something so smart and savvy, I think, for any early entrepreneur. See how you can carve out a reputation in that kind of, I'll say generosity, but I really mostly mean learning also. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, I was getting my sea legs too. So that was a really beneficial offering that I could throw out to the world. Yeah, I love that. And I think one thing that resonates with me about that example is the authenticity that you approach it with. You know, I think so many times in, in my conversations, especially with students, networking sounds icky because somehow it's has this reputation of being tied to being inauthentic, right? Like you're just having this conversation to try to get something from someone, but that's not what we want. (laughs) That's not, that should not be the goal. You know, and when you really do come in authentically trying to connect, trying to help, you know, trying to learn the great things happen, you know, that's really when it creates the space for the magic, if you will. (laughs) Yeah, well, I've been sending this book out for a number of months now. This is a brand new industry to me. Publishing is totally new. 
And I have zero network in this industry. <laughs> like I am hooked up in tech. In this publishing people, I know nothing. And it has been so lonely and just faceless. You're just sending your pride and joy memoir to like agent, like, please ask me for more of it, yeah. you know? And everybody goes to you and nobody writes you back. And that really got to me because I am good at networking and that was starting to piss me off. So what I will say is that the way that whole process got more warm to me is that I went to a writing conference mm -hmm. for one day in DC recently. And then I got to meet other writers. And then I got to say, who should I talk to? So for students who are having a hard time networking, especially only virtually and through things like LinkedIn and whatnot, see where they can go to in person. So I know y'all yeah. have career fairs sometimes or coffees with different alumni and stuff. That is like the most valuable time you can spend because the connection there. And again, like I said, who else should I be talking to? You just ask that question. They're going to be like, my brother knows somebody in that, you know, I right. mean, that people are so much faster than algorithms are. 100%. And kind of to keep going in the same vein, what is the guidance or advice that you would give to someone who's interested in doing the work that you do? I think that first I will just step back and say, you're going to figure it out. Whatever it will be, you're going to figure it out. And Muhlenberg, in my heart, is well known for very self-aware people. So to listen to your gut and your intuition about this is the direction I'm thinking and this is the one I'm not thinking. Even that can be really helpful sometimes. Then I think you have to live your life for a while. So to be a coach when you're like right out of college, you better be coaching like middle schoolers, you know, like <laughs> you got you got to build some some story in some ways. You know, I'm not saying you can't do it, but I'm just saying there's at least in that vertical. Right. There's there's a little bit of assumption. So you got to go do the work for a while. And then in coaching, you will maybe start to observe that you have ideas for how to support people doing that work. And then at that point, you might peel off and do your own thing, or there's plenty of coaching firms right now at that point. But really, ultimately, I think you got to follow the directions and not specifically two targeted goals, things that are too singular, because that's like the one shot, you know, and if you don't make that shot, that can be really demoralizing. So I was an English major. Everybody said go into publishing. Well, publishing is burned down now. I don't know what to say. Nobody, everybody got coffee for people for 10 years and then they had no job anyway. So they left. And I don't know what they're telling English majors at this point. Don't do English. Who knows? But definitely do English. English definitely majors. English. <laughs> it is valuable. Yeah. Um, you can go anywhere. But I think sometimes that's really overwhelming. It's so vague. If you're going to be a doctor, cool. The path is paved. If you're yeah. going to be an English major or a philosophy or a poli sci or like any of this stuff, the path is really, really wide. Mm -hmm. So you just got to try stuff. And then along the way, that will start to filter a little bit more the direction you want to head in. And then that is going to spit you out somewhere that is really aligned with who you are because it will be based on experience. I love it. I love it. Perfect. That is such great advice and, and so true. You know, you have to try things on. We encourage students start early, start trying in your oh, first yeah. year, but intern, yeah. Know, <laughs> yes. But trying things on and taking that time to reflect what was good about it, what was bad, what did you love, what did you hate? You know, that is also what helps then tailor that path. 
Totally. And I would say that as you have these experiences, just remember that every interaction matters. So as you are more junior in roles, you really want to show up as responsible. You want to look like you know how to get somewhere on time. You want to look like you're hearing feedback and addressing it because you don't have enough like clout or reputation yet to smooth over those things. So be buttoned up in the first few years of one's career, wherever you are, look like you know that you can handle yourself and that you are a support to anybody out there. It's easy to be the like, quote unquote, kid on the block who nobody expects much of. Do the opposite. Be there. Be ready. Be early. Be, you know, able to absorb more. Don't burn yourself out. But there's a lot of spectrum in there. And lean into those things. You get opportunities so much more often if you are something people can count on. This episode of 2400 Chew was produced by the Office of Alumni Affairs at Muhlenberg College. It was recorded and engineered in the studios of WMUH, Allentown, Pennsylvania. Our opening and closing music from Cowboy Bebop is performed by the Muhlenberg College Jazz Big Band. <laughs>